0: analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. I am a re-energized fan all of a sudden for the University of Illinois Fighting Illini. And I am joined today by a guy who is always energized for the Georgia Bulldogs. How are you today, Doug Battle?
1: I'm doing well, Mike. the uh, The big Florida loss this weekend was the highlight of the weekend for <laughs> Georgia fans. So, the uh, the shoe game, as they say. Um, so, for those of you that missed that, essentially Florida's playoff hopes came down to a player on their team throwing another player's cleat twenty yards across the field for a. a penalty that cost them the game uh when it looked like they had it in their hands so that was a fun one uh for, for georgia you know, fans that are a little look, bitter about that rivalry right now you
0: gotta love a little childishness in sports i mean you know because <laughs> it, it really it, it's the look it's like it's like uh you know in any of i mean we're talking fandom so it's like the standard narrative it's almost like a little bit of comic relief yeah right so you had the you had the enemy lose and lose in an embarrassing fashion. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. Um
1: it reminds me of last year's Ole Miss Mississippi State game where uh, Ole Miss player scored in the end zone and then he fake um he he pretended as if he were a dog that was going to the bathroom in Mississippi State's end zone. <laughs> and then there was a penalty and then they kicked it off and Mississippi State got good field position, and ended up winning the game from the whole thing. So this was the closest thing to that. The difference is that Florida actually was a playoff contender. Um, that game was somewhat meaningless other than the fact that it was just it was just for bragging
0: rights. Um, okay. So can you can you imagine being a coach of one of these organizations <laughs> no so you're a you're a guy that's making five five million dollars a year, let's say running a hundred million dollar business, yeah, and you got guys pretending they're dogs in the end zone, <laughs> throwing shoes no i and and you can lose that gig because of this stuff yeah, I actually have
1: been helping coach eighth grade basketball, and it's helped me to appreciate um how frustrating it can be as like for these coaches, because yeah, I'm, I don't have a lot of pressure. I'm not getting paid millions of dollars. I wish I was, that'd be nice. But, uh, but getting these kids to be in control of their emotions when maybe it gets chippy with another team, um, or when they hit a big shot and, and they're feeling themselves a little bit is a little bit, it can be frustrating, but with 18 to 21 year olds who are Bigger, faster, stronger than you, trying to tell them what to do, and and having your reputation on the line, um, and your career on the line, uh, the success of your career. I, I can't imagine being in that position. And my hats off to the coaches that that successfully uh, have a disciplined team. Florida does not.
0: Okay. Well, so what I heard in that, and you know, I want to do a shout out to one of my favorite Twitter handles. I don't know anything about the guy, but <laughs> the gentleman's name is Three Year Letterman. He's a Georgia and guy. He is. And he is a youth football coaching legend, so I'm glad to hear that you are on that path. <laughs> I'm on the to path becoming...
1: youth basketball coaching legend. That's what I'm going for. I need that clout um, on Twitter so that like the three-year Letterman, I can um, correct others and and let my thoughts be known on practically every subject, as a superior to anyone on on the subject of sports, as a as a youth football or youth basketball legend. Yeah,
0: and look, I mean, he is a great follow on Twitter, you know, because <laughs> it's just relentless trolling, you know, throwing. <laughs> I mean one of his you know major themes for whatever reason is to throw out that Ben Franklin was just one of the greatest presidents of the United States and that's reeling in the outraged responses he's He's sort of everything that is good and everything that's bad about Twitter all at the same time.
1: Yeah, he's like the average person on Twitter, uh, but he's <laughs> trying to be funny and he's not just
0: bizarre in and of well, itself. well so so the college football season has basically wrapped up. So, and I'm going to admit, I'm a little bit confused. Uh, I haven't totally looked into some of the details. I was I was checking things online. Harbaugh says he is still committed to Michigan. You yeah. know, Harbaugh has figured out a way to potentially derail Ohio State by yeah. not playing. <laughs> Love that. Um, but, but but I don't know, what, like, what is happening? I, I think Ohio State does not have enough games to qualify uh, well, for the playoffs.
1: Here's what's happened. I, here's what happened okay. there. The Big Ten made a rule before the season. Uh Essentially, where yeah, Ohio State would have had to play at least six games to be eligible for the conference championship. Well, Ohio State's the Big Ten's only chance at a playoff spot. Ohio State ends up in a position where they only play five regular season games. The Big Ten changes their rule after the season. So, in other words, if it had been any other team, it would have applied, but because it's Ohio State, and because they are a playoff contender and they can make a lot of money for the Big Ten, uh, the rule bent a little bit, and now they just wiped it out altogether. Ohio State's in that conference championship looking like they've got a cakewalk to the college football playoff, having played half as many games and thus suffered probably half as many injuries as their competition.
0: Okay, so we've got last-minute rule changes. We've got folks throwing shoes. (laughs) We've got Vanderbilt running a, you know, almost like filming a plot for a Disney movie right. in terms of, you know, breaking breaking glass ceilings, etc. There will be
1: a movie for that, by the way. It's just oh, an well,
0: at least a show, right? It's a 30, <laughs> 30 for 30 kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We've also now entered the uh, the part of the season where dismissals are occurring. I believe the Auburn coach went Justin down. Justin Malzahn's
1: gone. Georgia fans are upset about that one. I think most SEC fans out that are not Auburn fans are, are a little upset.
0: Well, the the thing that struck uh, you know really stuck out to me on that one was the number on the buyout. I believe that's an <laughs> over twenty million dollar. I think
1: it was twenty six million. I remember being at the lake in Alabama a few years back. And we saw this awesome house on the lake. And and I was asking, whose house is that? That's got to be a celebrity. And the person I was with said, oh, that? Yeah, that's from Gene Chiswick's buyout. That's Gene Chiswick's house. Because uh, Gene Chiswick was the last national championship head coach at Auburn, was fired, I think, three years later, and had signed this huge contract um, after that championship where he was going to be at Auburn for a long time. And he essentially got paid to go hang out at that lake house for a couple years. Um, So now we're seeing the same exact thing with Gus, their next head coach. They signed him to, and at the time, most opposing fans thought it was the most absurd contract and that it would come back to buy Auburn, and sure enough, it has. Another interesting thing about that storyline is that early signing day is this week. So the majority of next year's big prospects are signing uh, because a lot of them early enroll in college football. So they'll start school in the spring. Auburn is without a coaching staff uh, giving them quite the competitive disadvantage.
0: Yeah, but it is interesting in terms of the, um, the willingness to pull the plug on something like that and to pay that price. Yeah, it's, you know, and and, I mean, you said it's got to be some celebrity on that. How, uh, you know in that house on the on the lake well in Alabama isn't that sort of the definition of a celebrity oh yeah
1: no those are the only celebrities in Alabama are Nick Saban and, and Gus Malzahn um, mm-hmm. who I guess has lost his status as celebrity but he could be a U.S. Senator one day uh, that tends to that's kind of the the new path for former Auburn disgraced Auburn coaches
0: Yeah. uh, For those of you that don't know, Tommy Tuberville was recently elected to the U.S. Senate. um, The the South is a lot of fun. I'll I'll give you that. It's it's great.
1: Yeah. The the signs I would see, because I'm from Birmingham, the signs I would see, and this is not an endorsement anyway. This is an observation. uh, The signs I would see in Birmingham during election season this year where there would be TNT signs in front of houses, it would say TNT uh, Tuberville and Trump. Um, so that was kind of a package deal for the the uh, majority, or I guess a portion of the GOP in the Alabama area, uh, voting for the former Auburn football coach as a senator. And yes, he Nothing is now wrong. now a U.S. senator.
0: Nothing wrong with that. Um, Good, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, politics, GOP politics, and college football. Now there was another coaching dismissal, or at least a parting of ways, which is a little. Uh, Little closer to home for me, and that was the dismissal mm-hmm. of Lovey Smith at yes. the University of Illinois. Yes, and I uh I don't have it down, but I think uh you know Lovey's record at Illinois. Okay, so so the little bit of the backup background story on this is Illinois had a new new AD Josh Whitman came in and was. Sort of clearly on a mission to clean things up. Right. One of his first acts was to move away from an interim head coach in Bill Cubit, and hire Lovey Smith as a real high-profile uh, addition to the Illini program. Uh, the The contract I think was fairly large, kind of an SEC level contract of five million dollars for five years. So they they paid Lovey Smith a lot of money, and Lovey Smith's high point. Was a six and seven season that ended with a trip to the Red Box Bowl, I believe, (laughs) uh, followed up by going two and five this year. And the Lovey Smith experiment has now ended.
1: Yeah. So, my concern, uh, if I were an Illinois fan, would be what are you going to do that's better than Lovey Smith? What are you going to do that's better than uh, the first or tied for the first African American head coach uh, to coach in the Super Bowl? Um, a guy with that NFL pedigree that I'm sure helps on the recruiting trail, uh, quite the football history. But
0: well, but but going back to what you were saying, I mean, th- this was part of the key, right? So this was a guy that took the Chicago Bears, the city to the north of Champaign, right. two hours to the north, took the Bears to the Super Bowl. <clears throat> so this is this is Illinois football, the state of Illinois football royalty, and, and the hope was that. Like a smart NFL guy, going to come down here. Uh, and like I said, big name in the state will potentially really clean up on the re- recruiting front. I-, I can tell you that the recruiting has been—I mean, it's—it's it's been something else. I'm—I'm I'm, going to put an article out there on the uh, on the blog where I'm going to detail some of the recruiting and the one loss record of the Levy Smith tenure, but. In general, as an Illini fan, when you were looking at the rankings of the recruiting class, you were seeing numbers like 12th, 13th, 14th, 10th in the Big Ten. Yeah. It was absolutely brutal. And I'll tell you one of the things for me that was an early warning sign that this was going to be a problem was in-state recruiting. Okay, so, so down here, you know, Georgia, the state of Georgia probably produces... I don't know, what do you think, about 100 D1 prospects a year? Oh,
1: it's a lot. I mean, it feels like yeah. the entire SEC, but uh, yeah. plus some others.
0: But, but it, the state of Illinois probably only produces 25 to 35 D1 prospects a year. And Illinois' top recruit over the last few years has been like the 10th rated guy, the 15th rated guy. I think this year they got their top rated in-state recruit is the 30th ranked player in the state of Illinois. So for whatever for whatever reason, Lovey had been completely unable to get into the Illinois high schools and to build the relationships and to get that to get that local talent.
1: Yeah, one thing that I um, have come to understand just from covering Georgia football a little bit is that the college coaching profession is an entirely different job uh, than coaching in the NFL. At least half of it, the off season. Uh, during the season, yes, coaching on the field is, is very much the same. But these guys are on the road twenty four seven. I got a cousin that's a, one of the assistants at Duke, and you know he's told me about what it's like and what it's like in the different conferences. And some of these NFL guys come in and maybe don't. I know Georgia's had coaches that have been fired that ha- had played in the NFL or had coached in the NFL. Um, that were considered lazy in, on the recruiting trail because they didn't have that get up and go for it every day in the offseason, work just as hard at acquiring players as you do at coaching those players. Um, and so that's, uh, I would imagine there's probably a little bit of that because I'm pretty surprised that Lovey Smith didn't have more success at Illinois um, given his history given, you know, the proximity to Chicago where he he coached with the Bears, I would think they would have torn it up in recruiting, especially locally. Um, th- there's got to be something that, you know, in that transition from the NFL to college um, that doesn't translate. And, and my bet is that it is recruiting.
0: I think, it's so I just looked it up while we were talking. And so the Illinois recruiting class for this year, you know, the, the in-progress recruiting class, is ranked 14 out of you know again. It's always it's always amusing to say 14 out of 14 in the Big Ten, Ooh. and the national rank is 88. Mm. Now you, you think how many? I don't know offhand how many Power Five schools there are in the country. Probably about 60. So he's being out recruited by third, roughly 30 non-Power Five schools after five years on the job. Yes. Yeah. It's you're, you're right, something didn't click. Maybe he didn't want to recruit. Maybe it had moved it moved past him somehow. Maybe he didn't have that kind of personality mm-hmm. that really resonates with uh, 17-year-old kids, but something was clearly broken there.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of coaches, like you look at Nick Saban struggling in the NFL uh, but absolutely dominating the last two decades of, of college football. Um, I mean, I think if you put the same players on every team In college it's a different game and I don't know that a guy like Nick Saban would would have dominated you know for 20 years Um, but so much of college sports and college football particularly is just acquiring greater talent when you have more talent than the next team you can run the same plays as them and and beat them by 50 points that's kind of what we've seen at Alabama that's been the model at Georgia what what they're trying to do a lot of SEC teams I mean LSU last year same kind of thing with pretty much NFL players at every position Um, and and so someone like lovey smith who may have had success in the nfl whereas a guy like nick saban didn't um probably doesn't have the same recruiting skills or at least the same recruiting uh want to that that a guy like nick saban right. has
0: well you know i mean and, and we should be fair lovey smith was fired by a couple of nfl teams as well yeah right? it's so not so like it, he dominated
1: it's <laughs> not like he dominated in the nfl i don't want to overstate his success but, but, there
0: but i i I love what you said, and it's something I've always thought. It's one of the craziest things about the college, about the football coaching profession. Mm-hmm. Is a lot of times you'll see a successful college coach get recruited up to the NFL, and it has always struck me as the craziest move to make. At the college level, you get to have better players than your opponent, right? Right. right. So you you get to potentially make seven million, five million dollars a year forever. Well, and, and let's just take Ohio State. Ohio State probably has a lot of years in the Big Ten and conference where they have, without question, more talent than every opponent they play. Yes. Who would not? Why would you ever move up to take that to take that job at the Cleveland Browns or the Jacksonville Jaguars? Yeah. And suddenly, you know, have less talent on on your side of the field.
1: Yeah, I remember uh, a few years back. Gus Malzahn at Auburn was reportedly fielding some offers from NFL teams, probably more of an agent move to to get him that nice contract he got. Um, but if you look at that in retrospect, um, he did a poor job at Auburn in the sense that he was out-recruited by all of his competition. They still had top 10 recruiting classes every year, but when you're in the same division as LSU and Alabama and you got to play Georgia every year, uh, you've got to have a top five recruiting class almost every year in order to, to truly have, you know, a, a real shot at winning without needing luck. Auburn was not able to do that. It's very difficult to do. But now Gus Malzahn is going to be uh, paid $26 million if he just doesn't work for the next couple of years. Um, I think there's certainly worse unemployment situations out there.
0: Well, now the other side of this story is my reaction as an Illini fan know don't want to wish ill on anyone I'm not one of these guys of like oh you know we got to bench the starting quarterback we got to put the backup in we got to fire the coach we got to fire the AD (laughs) we got to get rid of everyone right right not coming at it from there but you know when you look at and, and part of the reason why I key on recruiting is that recruiting is an indicator of the future and so when a coach is not recruiting well it is a hope killer. So if you're yeah. losing on the field, or you know, or a successful season is the Red Box Bowl, and then you have the 88th ranked class in the country, that is absolute death to the fan base. Yes. And the Illini fan base has been beaten up for it seems like decades now. With look, I mean, I can name the the bright spots are playing LSU in the Sugar Bowl right around the, the millennium, and then Ron Zook's run to the Rose Bowl, and I want to say 2007, 2008, those are the high points over the last perhaps 30 years or 25 years. It's not enough, right? And so right. it is. It's a, being an Illinois football fan is a continual kind of kick in the stomach, which is probably why Whitman went out and got a big celebrity name like like Lovey Smith just didn't work. So then the question becomes, well what do you do next? You know, you've yeah. got to, and, and look, Illinois doesn't have the resources for these kind of buyouts. What do you line up next to both create a successful program and and Doug, you made the point earlier. You got to have to judge Lovey Smith not in relationship to Nick Saban. You have to judge him in relationship to what can be accomplished at Illinois. All <laughs> right. And so then the question is, well, where, where do you go next? And it's, um, but I will say this, at least for the fans, the coaching searches are always a little bit fun, right? They're kind of like a draft day where there's again, kind of some, some hope out there. Maybe Illinois goes out and gets, gets Gus, right. Um, or they go for the, the young up and coming coach.
1: Yeah. One thing about college football, um, that I think fans need to understand, I think leagues need to understand this is that, uh, and I think they do, but. You know, in the NFL, if your team has the worst season ever, well, good news, you get the number one pick, right? You get Trevor Lawrence, Jets. Congratulations. And there's hope. I mean, there's Jets fans that will be pumped for next season that are pumped right now for this offseason because of the prospects of of Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. Um, in college football, if you win the national well, championship...
0: You know, yeah, go let, ahead. Let me interject ahead. something just in the middle of that. Who has more hope for the future now, the Jets or the Giants? probably the Jets and the it's Giants might be winning that division,
1: right probably <laughs> the Jets um, so in college football on the flip side, if you do worst in the league, guess what? You get the last draft pick uh, the equivalent mm-hmm. um, if you know Alabama's going to get the first draft. It's like if the Patriots got the number one draft pick every year and they were able to get you know over these last several years all the top players. Um, there's no parity in college football for that reason. That's why we see these top, that's why we've seen Alabama, Clemson, Oklahoma, you know, same couple teams in the playoff every single year, is that you essentially get the top pick when you have the top team the season before. Um, so for a program like Illinois, it's very difficult to generate hope because you don't have that bailout that the Jets get. Of well, you had a bad season, but you're going to get a handout from the NFL. Uh, there's no handout for <laughs> for Illinois. They gotta they gotta start from scratch. They either gotta hire some un, or some guy that's a big risk, or p- pay a lot of money to get a guy that's been successful elsewhere, um, which is really difficult to do at a, at a football program that's not that has not had recent success. So it's a totally different ball game uh, in college sports. And I think being a fan of the Illini is probably a lot harder than being a fan of the Detroit Lions, not because the Detroit Lions have fared better in the last 20 years, um, but because there's always that big top pick (laughs) coming up where they feel like, man, maybe Matthew Stafford's going to lead us or maybe Calvin Johnson's going to take us to the next level Um, there's none of that in college football or in college basketball for that matter.
0: Well said now on the other side of the sports aisle, there's also a bit of a reawakening for Illinois basketball. So uh, look, I, I think as an Illinois sports fan, I got some negative activity that's producing hope on the football side on the basketball side, Illinois went to Cameron indoor stadium indoor arena the home of the duke blue devils they came in and look illinois basketball has been a a rough haul for really about the last decade last year they probably would have made the tournament if it wasn't for the covid shutdown Mm, that's that's uh but they came into the season ranked um ranked as a a top 10 team and they thoroughly they thoroughly beat duke and I think it's gonna turn out that this Duke team is actually pretty bad. <laughs> but they beat a top ten Duke team on their on their home floor. And I, I'll tell you this as a as a fan, they did it in a way that was really kind of great. I absolutely love this Illinois team already, right out of the gate. They they've got a bunch of fun ingredients to it. They've got uh, they've got a player of the year candidate in A.O. Dosimo. Mm-hmm mispronouncing that a little bit. They've got a, you know, sharpshooting freshman, one of the, you know, sort of borderline five-star recruit and Adam Miller. I love this kid. They got, um, uh, Curbello, who looks like, uh, I think I write, wrote in the blog post that if he doesn't have a career in the NBA, he's probably got one with the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> he, he's going to be a lot of fun to watch for four years. A- and they've got a literal giant in the middle um, that doesn't get any calls because he's sort of like Shaq. He, right. He's so much bigger than everyone else. Right. And then on top of it, you got a coach that could be in the, you know, sort of the Bill Belichick uh, curmudgeon uh, training program. And, and so you've, you've got a lot of fun aspects and suddenly it, it it's a fascinating thing for me because it's how easy is it for this passion as a fan to be reignited?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um I mean I, I totally get that with I, I feel like it's the opposite for me. Uh getting excited about Georgia basketball is, is hard. And <laughs> even last year was a year where I was very excited and they were not on pace to make the tournament uh, with a prospect like Anthony Edwards. So it's it's kinda like losing Lovey Smith. We're like, you lose, if we couldn't do it with him, what's it gonna take for, for us to to build or rebuild to the point of really being a basketball school, just kind of like Illinois trying to be a football school. Um, But on the flip side, obviously there's a lot to enjoy for Illinois basketball fans and Georgia football fans. Um, Man, I got to say, I hate that you guys beat Duke during a limited capacity slash no capacity time because storming the court against Duke is one of the most fun experiences of my life. Um, I did it as a Virginia student and I did not attend the University of Virginia.
0: <laughs> it's also a lot of fun to make the Duke fans cry, yeah, right. Nothing better than watching a than watching your team beat Duke and watching those those poor little Dukey students kind of huddle as sort of borderline tears as their mighty blue devils are defeated on their home court. I mean, that's kind of the, it, it lets you know that as a fan, you kind of have to be a little bit of a bad person, right? Uh, reveling in the misery and look, no other fan base. would I want to see cry more than Duke basketball?
1: Well, I mean, it's the same as, as Georgia fans this weekend with Florida and the LSU game. Um, There's something about fandom where it's natural for fans of one entity to take pleasure and not just the the enemy team losing, um, but in the pain, the way that they lose, the manner of their losing. Um, So you've obviously described that as an Illinois fan with your loathing of Duke. I've described it as a Georgia fan, my loathing of florida it's a beautiful thing it's it's probably to a someone from a different culture listening to us would probably think um we're very messed up but it's it's it's, maybe we are maybe our whole culture is but it is part of fandom nonetheless
0: well i don't you know i don't know when i teach this stuff i spend a day on the like i I, you know i spend all this time talking about love that fans have for their team but then we often go well what's the other side of love you gotta you gotta have hate and you know, as an Illini, as line guy, look, I I really dislike Indiana. Um, I dis uh, Indiana basketball, uh, Iowa basketball for some historical reasons. I actually think sort of the hatred of Duke is almost universal for college basketball fans, even more so than some of the other blue blue bloods like Kansas or Kentucky. Duke, there's something about that Duke program mm-hmm. that. Uh, Look, I mean, you know, it's like maybe if you're a Louisville guy, your ideal f- victory is beating Kentucky on their home floor. But Duke is almost the universal bad guy, sort of the bully of college basketball.
1: Yeah, tying this uh, to a couple, I always end up tying everything in sports to movies and in movies to sports uh, somehow. But tying this, this conversation to uh, film for a moment, the bad guy, I've noticed just over the years, the caliber of bad guy, I think directly correlates to how engaging a film is and how well received it is, um, particularly for superhero movies like The Dark Knight. Everyone thought it was legit and like, wow, this feels real and this feels scary um, and I, I feel somewhat frightened watching it. Uh, well, it was because of Heath Ledger's Joker. You know, th- that's really the only difference between that movie and any of the other Batman movies, uh, any of the Spider-Man movies. Or, I mean, of course, that's oversimplifying. There's a lot going on there, but... Um, The caliber of the bad guy, the Star Wars movies having so much success with Darth Vader early on. And then in the more recent movies, kind of struggling to find a real bad guy that was menacing and scary that didn't feel like a copycat. And and people questioned the authenticity of these movies. Um, A villain is so necessary for creating a hero in film and in storytelling um, and storytelling in sports. And so, Duke is essential for, for UNC fans, and even losing to Duke, I think, is essential because beating a team like Duke really doesn't mean anything if they lose all their games, right? They, it, they've got to beat you most of the time, and they've got to kind of have your number in order for it to really feel, for you to really have that hate and really feel like you're accomplishing something. So I think it's a storytelling uh, mechanism in, in sports fandom and in sports branding and, and marketing um, but I think it's absolutely necessary to have a good villain.
0: Well, you know, it, it's funny that you mention uh, cinema because when I think of Duke and I'm going to go a totally different direction than you are, than you went, I tend to think of these John Hughes movies from the eighties where the thing about Duke that makes them such a great villain in this context is they actually seem to be the, you know, the, the, the kids at the country club, Right. Where everyone else is kind of the uh, you know whatever kind of the the misfit high school student, and beating Duke is beating you know Cobra Kai or beating <laughs> you know the the blonde kid with all the money. Oh, well, it's like it's
1: like when the nerd gets the girl, kind of. I mean, it's kind of the Peter Parker storyline. That's beating Duke. That's that's when a team, especially when it's a mid major, and the you know when it's Lehigh and NCAA tournament or or uh, Mercer, which have both happened somehow.
0: Okay, so that is, you know, to me, uh, I'd sort of just put it out there that it's kind of a personal reflection on the reignition of fandom, let's say, and how how easy it actually is. A little bit of hope tempered by reality in the case of the football program and in the case of the basketball, hey, you throw a fun team out there, you get a, a decent win, and I'm 100% back in even after a decade of futility. And I will point out, that the team is actually only four and two, losing to Baylor and Missouri, but it's just you know you just need enough. You you got to have you got to have these these. And again, it's the kind of an overword, overused word the last couple of weeks. But hope for the future is kind of the key driver.
1: Yeah, I think um, I think you're dead on there. And, and one other thing that we obviously just talked about is hatred. <laughs> um, I f- I feel like that is. Something that will always get fans, uh, get their fandom reignited. I think Georgia could have a terrible season. We could be winless, and I will still get fired up for the Auburn game or the Florida game. Uh, Not because I'm excited about the Georgia team, but I'm excited about the prospects of potentially ruining Florida or Auburn season.
0: Okay, so Mr. Battle, what... What if anything else in the world of sports or entertainment is on your uh, on your mind as we wrap up this week's episode?
1: Well, Mike, one thing I think early on in my tenure here with Fanalytics, um, we discussed the Washington R words changing their name uh, and what they might change it to and what that might mean, and we discussed other teams that might have to change their names in, in the coming months, coming years. Uh, one of those teams was the Cleveland. Now the Cleveland I words, the Cleveland Indians. Um, they are no longer the Cleveland Indians. I'm not sure what they're going to be, but we're back in the situation where uh, 2020 political correctness and sports political correctness really affects everything in our our culture. Um, this will be the second major sports brand totally rebranding, or, or at least somewhat rebranding um, from the whole phenomena and we've got a handful of other teams that look like it'll force their hand um looking at right down the road at the atlanta braves uh for example so i think that's definitely worth uh discussing for a moment and uh diving into
0: you know it it, it's always been interesting me over and and i think i probably told this story a number of years I, i first got into the issue of mascots Based on an interest, and again, sort of a very Illini-focused show. But when the uh, when Illinois moved away from Chief Illini Wick as their symbol, their uh, they, they never called him a mascot. I forget what the word that they used was, but their sort of halftime entertainment. The the question is, well, well what happens? And, and look, Illinois was a lot like most, the way most of these controversies work, where there's there's a push to eliminate the offensive mascot. And it goes on for years and years, and then finally a change is made. It's happened a lot at the college level. I think it used to actually be the Stanford Indians my, way back my in the day. My personal
1: favorite is the Ole Miss Rebels, where they changed okay. their name, uh, technically, but they
0: still paint Rebels across their end zone for every game. But <laughs> okay. it's not
1: their name, it's not their brand. Um, uh, but it's just
0: so, so, so there's a lot of the, I mean, the Native American ones have been sort of the the firestorm for years and that's where you've seen a lot of movement Syracuse Marquette Illinois um and so it started with me doing some work just actually looking at what happens and I can tell you at the college level you don't see a lot of loss of fans so the alumni tend to come back as soon as the team starts to win again at the pro level obviously the big one has always been the washington redskins and i think it's kind of interesting the way you said that the washington r words because that is definitely part of this what's unique about this this story is just over the last few years it's gotten to the point where even saying the name of the old team can potentially get you into trouble. I think it was NPR that edited um, some audio tape of myself <laughs> and took out all of those, yeah. all of those references.
1: And to add some context to that, Mike was discussing team names and changing team names, right. and he was censored from saying the actual name of the team uh, <laughs> he was discussing.
0: So so I think it's actually reached the point where when I'm writing about this stuff I'm just going to say you know it, it again it's kind of this this Harry Potter universe that we live in with these millennials that grew up with <laughs> can't say Voldemort and so look I will I will now say it's the Washington football team and the Cleveland baseball team I I kind of like the idea of moving towards these kind of Euro soccer models of call it uh call it Cleveland uh Cleveland B T, right? Or Cleveland BC for baseball team or baseball club. Um but it is kind of an interesting one in terms of well what happens next. What is the next domino to fall in this? And so what do you think? I think you referenced the uh you referenced the Braves and uh what was the other one you threw out there?
1: Yeah, I mentioned the Atlanta B words. Um, <laughs> um. Uh, let's let's see who else who else do we have is there a hockey team? the Chicago block oh Black yeah, yeah hockey yeah Chicago um, yeah so those two but I mean nowadays it's hard to find a team that someone doesn't have a criticism of that could potentially ruin their branding I, I know that we had discussed a while back somebody out there wanting the Georgia Bulldogs to change their name uh, or change their mascot and not have a live animal Mascot. There's a lot of anti-live animal people out there, so I think that one could get tricky with so many teams having live animal mascots.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. Well, the the one they hate the most... Well, yeah, you know what? In fact, I, I, I sort of take that back. I, I've been around this long enough that, in fact, I'm going to say the, the, the two live animal mascots that they hate the most are Mike the Tiger at LSU <laughs> yeah. and, oddly, I do think Ugga from the Georgia Bulldogs... Yeah has rocketed up that list over the last couple of years. In the case of Mike the Tiger, there's something about having a predator live in an enclosed space, even though I, you know, my understanding is that Mike the Tiger has a beautiful home. I've seen
1: Mike the <laughs> Tiger's home. Uh, it's like a little mini Africa.
0: Yeah, and then in the case of the Georgia Bulldogs, it's the concerns about how attractive the Bulldog is is causing people... To push the breeders into creating, I don't, I don't know if this is an actual or real world ever less health healthful, well ever less healthy uh, versions of the bulldog, and it's it's kind of an interesting one too because I've been on record saying that I think Ugga and Reveille might be the two best mascots in college football. Reveille for Texas A and M, so it's interesting that even those kind of family pet where the family is the the the, the Bulldog Nation, yeah. th- those are really under fire.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see, but if we're going to really try to think like a snowflake here, uh, I could see the New England Patriots. <laughs> I could see that mm-hmm. one coming under fire for being like... um Labeled an ideology or or radical political term or, or something along those lines. I I again I'm not making that claim. I'm just saying I could see somebody doing that. Yeah,
0: but I, I've actually seen it made. Yeah. So, so there I've been you go. running an ass, I've been running an assignment in class where I ask students to identify a problem brand out there. <laughs> yeah. And the problem with the found, with the patriots is that these are the founding fathers were a bunch of white men. Yep. There many of whom own slavery right. and so it, it quickly it quickly becomes something that is almost indefensible depending on how the and how the name is well, is framed. Let me
1: let me take it a step further. If we're going to say if we're going to go the uh slave owner route, uh is the term Washington Football Team a f- problematic offensive George Washington? It is. He, yeah, cuz I mean, he was it, a slave. It, like, owner. I mean,
0: not now, you know, and we always gotta be always wanna sort of clarify individual opinions versus kind of uh, versus just kind of an analytical perspective on this stuff. Yeah. That case is also made. Look, I, I can tell you one that kind of threw me, and this was last year's class, where one of the one of the student teams identified the Rajing Cajuns as an offensive name. Mm. And it kind of brings you up short for a second because I, you know, Raging Cajuns actually sounds like kind of a fun name that everyone could get behind. But at this point, it's almost like if a team name relates to a monolithic or a single ethnicity, mm-hmm. it is going to come under attack for being exclusionary. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very, with the current culture, it's a very narrow path to not be offensive. Historical figures are different, are difficult. Live animals, uh, ethnic groups, you know, fighting Irish will probably be uh, attacked in the, in the coming years. Yeah.
1: I think our safest teams, because uh, nobody's safe in, in 2020 and uh, soon to be 2021, nobody's safe from, from all this, but I think our safest team, uh, the U, I think UNBC they beat Virginia in the first round a couple of years back. Uh, they're the golden retrievers. Uh, hard, hard to imagine that one. I think the Oregon Ducks have got to be one of the bigger brands that's truly safe, um, although that could change tomorrow. We're just not as well educated on the um, oppression uh, of the ducks. oppression of ducks. The um, Florida State Seminoles—that's one that's they're they're going to be on the hot seat pretty soon. I could see. It.
0: Well, the the Seminoles are interesting, right? Because they've got a contractual they're they've got a relationship. And maybe it's contractual. Maybe they're sharing some revenues with the the Seminole tribe. There you so go. at this point, they they're relatively clean in all this. They're being
1: proactive about this. They knew this was coming.
0: But to me, if I'm if I'm name I'm not I'm not joking around on this, if I'm naming a team, if I'm renaming the the Washington football team, that's exactly where I'm gonna leave the name. The Washington football team. I'm gonna wash my I'm gonna wash my hands of it. I think Europe has proven that you can you can get away with just the name of the city, or putting a word like United or football club after it. In the current culture, I think that is probably the safest and best way forward.
1: What Mike, as a as a mascot expert? Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, I gotta laugh at that one. Uh, yeah, who 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 knows how your life's gonna go <laughs>
1: as a mascot expert?
0: As a mascot expert speaking to a future youth basketball coaching legend. Yes,
1: Yes. from from mascot legend to youth coaching legend, um, could you tell me please how you view, or I guess the value that's lost in a team like the Washington R words transitioning from having a mascot to not having a mascot, right? Because there's got to be a value that's added by having this um, symbol for a team. And, and that's why we have mascots. I would imagine. I'm sure there was, you know, it's kind of a, a, supply and demand thing where they realized, Oh, this, this is a good thing that helps us build a brand. This helps us create fans. What happens when you take that away? For example, this would be an extreme example, but if all these teams were just going by the Brooklyn basketball team and the Cleveland baseball team.
0: Okay. So let's, um, sort of, Let's kind of go through this uh on a personal on a personal level okay so let's talk about aga now does Aga feel like what does Aga feel like to you does Aga feel like a dog that almost a little bit like your dog um
1: yeah i've I've met Uga before I've actually met a different Uga than the one we presently have it's like meeting Santa Claus yeah. right there's yeah there's okay. one at every mall in the entire world right now um, but once you meet him you know santa claus like he's your friend and he's your guy and he's going to give you a gift like Ugga is my dog like yeah i that's my dog i'll give him a pet every time i see him he's a good boy and i love seeing him out there on the field
0: okay so Ugga is almost the equivalent of family pet and mm-hmm. i think to a lot of us that means Uga's is kind of part of your family and so Ugga's part of your family and so are those other ninety thousand plus people in the in the stands, right? So what's great about a mascot if they're done right is it's something that is this point of connection. Mm-hmm. Now, could you do you also let me ask you this, do you own any clothing with a bulldog on it?
1: Yes, quite a bit. Probably half of my wardrobe
0: okay so he's also a symbol that can go on a t-shirt or a sweatshirt where you guys can use to identify e- each other and say hey and let, let me ask you this um if you were walking across a parking lot and you're wearing some georgia colors do people ever shout out do they ever yes. bark at you yes. or shout out go dog
1: yes um uh, especially when i'm traveling like i was in colorado a few years back and i wore a lot of georgia stuff and almost i was a student at the time and almost everyone everywhere i went somebody would say hey go dogs go dogs you know and and then you start talking to him you have a conversation you find out oh they were in the same class at georgia (laughs) as my mom was and they were there when herschel walker was there well i was there the next time we made the national championship and you have all these conversations that way
0: Okay, and so that's kind of I think that's the key. You ask what's the value to these mascots, to these symbols, and it's this, it's this point of, uh, it's this focal point for a community. It's something that you guys can all gather around and and share. And so there's definitely some value to that. Now here's the 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 complicating factor in it though. If Georgia decided to not have a mascot, to not have Uga, right? Would there still be and I don't what what's the capacity of the stadium? Ninety six thousand. Okay. Would there still be ninety six thousand people in the seats in a post COVID world? Yes. Without Uga. Yes, absolutely. Right. And, and so I think for some of these brands, they've reached the point of maturity, and Uga is something. It's like a nice to have. Yeah. It's it's something that the community can bond around, but it's also a brand that is so developed, and the loyalty is so intense. That you guys can kind of do without it now. If I switch gears and let's talk about the University of Illinois, you know the the loss or sort of discontinuing some of the traditions probably gets a little bit more, a little bit more dangerous. So, you know, it, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I mean, these things potentially have value, but in the world of sports. Anything that happens with a sort of anything marketing related, anything you know, the cool uniforms, cool mascot, this stuff is all just blown away by having a team that wins ninety percent of their games, goes to final fours, goes to major bowl games, to that to that kind of thing. Right. And, and so, in the case of teams, professional teams, very much a very much a nice to have. The Redskins might take a little bit of a heat from some of their fan base. Hey, they may have acquired more fan new fans this year by moving away from the name. Um, but if that team goes to a Super Bowl or goes to a couple of Super Bowls, then in some ways Washington football team is just going to be fine.
1: Yeah, I think the problem with it for the Washington football team is they did have years of lots of Super Bowls that were tied to that R-word brand. Yeah. Um, and now that they've disassociated from that, and they're not good, it's like those old fans, my father is one, have a hard time feeling like this is their team where you take away that winning history or, or the the feeling of it, um, the branding that's the only thing associated, the only thing connecting those teams to these teams were the uniforms and, and the team name and the HTTR. That, that's, I think that's probably, in my eyes, the most valuable thing that would be lost for Georgia, for example, if they were to take away uh, – ugga for example, and, and if it were looked down upon to say dog and and go dogs and that's my dog and all this dog till I die stuff, um, is like the things that are shared on social media, the things that are said between people. Go dogs is a big one. I know uh from all my friends in in DC that are red that are R word fans, um. That are Washington football fans, um, they <laughs> they um, yeah. they used to just post every Sunday HTTR. I would have twenty posts because I have a bunch of family up there HTTR. Every time they score a touchdown HTTR, and now I don't see any of that. Um, so it's like free advertising for for the Washington football team that's no longer there. And, and I don't think they know how to like what to go football team. You know, like what do they say? Doesn't catch. Doesn't feel right. And it doesn't have that exponential free advertising effect that on social media that something like hashtag go dogs or hashtag HTTR has. So um, I, that's another point. I mean, there's a lot of things. This is kind of like trying to put a number on on marketing stuff for a profitable brand. Like would Honda still be v- really valuable without commercials? Yeah. Um, or without their logo, yeah. But there there certainly is value there, and I think it's the case with this. And it, it's just you can spend a lot of time going around finding parts of it that are valuable and, and were may maybe lost for teams like the R-Words or the Cleveland I-Words.
0: Well, and let, let me throw one last comment on that because I think it, it, it is an important part of this story and sort of your reference to, I think you said your grandfather's, is an interesting one in that, you know, moving away from the historical brands, changing the names, probably does have more of an impact on certain segments of of fans, right? So if you went to the University of Illinois and you were into sports and you saw Chief Alinawick dance at all the football games, maybe that's an important part of your of your Illinois story, right? If you were a, uh, a Washington football fan, fan and you owned, uh, you know, our word jerseys for, for years and years, and they take that away, look, in some ways it's kind of reasonable for the fan to go, you know, I, I don't know what this is now. This is not what I was, this is not what I was rooting for. I mean, the fandom is, you know, especially at the professional level, when we don't have a pure affiliation to the, to the university is a little bit of an artificial beast, right? It's like, why am I rooting for this Chicago football team? Well, I guess I'm a Bears fan because I happen to live in Chicago, right? It's almost like my job transfers me to Chicago. Now I have to root for the Bear Bears fan. and the Cubs. Yeah. So there's something arbitrary about it. And so if you disrupt what is kind of an arbitrary relationship, and especially, let's say, for older consumers that aren't, let's say, going to the games anymore, they're not watching this stuff in the in sports bars, you know, they're watching in their house. There's there's more of a tendency for disruption than for younger consumers. Okay, so Doug, to wrap this one up, we've got something, something non-sports related on the agenda. We are going to do a special episode on Star Wars fandom.
1: Yes. Um, <laughs> this is something I've been pushing for since... I was hired, and I've gotten Mike to watch two whole seasons of The Mandalorian. He's all caught up now. He's right there with me. So we got the finale this week. Uh, we've had, I think, 12 or 13 new projects introduced last week by Disney that are going to roll out over the next three years. Uh, Star Wars projects. Star Wars fans are pumped up right now. It's Christmas. You got uh, Star Wars Legos. I'm giving a little buddy of mine. Um uh, A star wars nerf gun i mean it's it's star wars season every christmas for me it feels (laughs) like um so yeah what better time to discuss this incredible fandom that started from a movie that the creator of the movie did not think would be successful at all and has turned into somewhat of a religion across the world
0: so that's on its way and so uh for for this week what I'm gonna say is uh well I'll, I'll let you I'll let you do your shout out first. Who are you rooting for this week?
1: Uh, I'm rooting for Boba Fett, I'm rooting for Mando, I'm rooting for Baby Yoda, and I'm rooting for the Georgia Bulldogs. Go okay, I'm
0: gonna second that. This is the first time we've been in agreement. I'm rooting for Boba Fett. So if you are not if you had sort of tapped out of the Star Wars universe, um based on the, the second three movies probably a lot of folks in my generation tapped out with, uh, what was that, Jar Jar Binks kind of nonsense? <laughs> that the Mandalorian and the return of Boba Fett is something, it's something great. And uh, I'm back in and go Boba Fett.